Hello and welcome back to CRCC Spotlight. This is episode 13 now, I believe. Unlucky for some, hopefully very lucky for me, Nick Benwell, Stephen Gentle and Camilla De Silva, all from the crime team here. Um, we're looking to do an episode, first of a series of sort of a mini series of three on dealing with enforcement, negotiating with enforcement. And uh, so we're obviously here to cover the criminal aspects, but my colleagues Tom Macon and David Trapp will also do episodes on uh, leniency applications vis-a-vis -vis the CMA and uh, negotiating with the FCA respectively in the context of regulatory investigations. So as I say, we've got the three crime team partners here to talk about negotiating with, I say the SFO, I think we're talking really about enforcement, criminal law enforcement generally, but uh, inevitably that will involve us focusing on the SFO in particular because Miller's experience of working there for many years. So I think really what we're hoping is that we can draw on sort of the range of expertise that we've got in this team from the private practice side, the enforcement side, individuals work, corporates work, internal investigations, external driven investigations, trials, secondments, enforcement experience kind of across the board. So we're talking here about negotiating generally. So that might be in the context of you know ordinary mm -hmm. section two notices. Witness statements might be self-reporting, might be DPA, pre-trial issues, sort of anything and everything. So pretty broad scope. But Camilla, thinking about all those different contexts and then specifically uh, the SFO perspective, having been there for I think it's eight years, what are what are the SFO's key drivers as an organisation when it's when it's coming to sort of a, a negotiation discussion? Um, well, I'd say that the SFO, I guess like all organisations, is an ever-evolving organisation. So it's not set in stone. It doesn't have, you know, a particular uh, way of dealing with things. And I think particularly around the DPA tool, we've very much seen the SFO uh, learning how to utilise that. So certainly in the time that I was there, and actually Helen, I was there uh, six years. I may have achieved a lot Sorry. of that. <laughs> it was actually six years. I oversold you by two years. Apologies. <laughs> not at all. Um, but uh, it, it was definitely it was it was clear to see the evolving use on an application of a tool like the DPA. But in terms of its drivers, um, well, clearly, as a public prosecutorial body, um, its aim is to investigate. And it, it would say that it does that without fear or favour. Um, so there's that statutory obligation. So that's pr its primary function. Um, and I think that would mean it would not shy away from the difficult cases or the the the, the big organizations um and i think that translates into different um approaches so we'll, we we see a very uh, clear mandate to investigate alongside other law enforcement bodies whether that be uh the department of justice or more locally the N necc or HMRC, we, we see that that is uh, clearly part of um, the organisation's DNA. And I think um, the other driver for the SFO is very much currently uh, progress, the need to progress its investigations more quickly than it has done in the past. We've seen that from the output of recent HMRCP um, um, audits. And there's an increasing rigour around um, the progress that the SFO makes with its investigations. And as part of that, there's a real need to utilise the tools that it's been given, that it has at its disposal. So 
that's incumbent on the SFO to utilise UWOs where appropriate, uh, and obviously DPAs, as we've seen uh, over the years. So, Camilla, can I just jump in quickly there? So, do you think that 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 is driving the SFO to be more aggressive in its approach? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, what, do you think that it is uh, becoming more aggressive in its use of the tools uh, available at its at disposal? I don't know if it's becoming more aggressive as such, but I think there's always been a desire within law enforcement to utilise the tools available and to push the boundaries of what that means. And obviously, we've seen that most recently with the KBR decision in the extra jurisdictional reach. And clearly, the Supreme Court have clipped the wings of the SFO in terms of that extra jurisdictional reach. But what the SFO would have said uh, what would be that it was necessary to take that point uh, and utilise that tool in that way to see where the boundaries of um, the reach lay. Uh, and, and so I think that's um, what what we see. I don't know if that's particularly an aggressive approach. I think perhaps arguably not. I think we've, we we may well be seeing less bold decisions from the SFO um, I think it's still to be seen um, what what the mandate will be from the SFO beyond what I've said. I don't think there's a huge amount of clarity beyond the need to progress investigations quickly and to utilise its tools. It's not entirely clear, I think particularly post-pandemic, uh, where the interest of the SFO will lie. But in terms of, I think, clients and sort of engagement with the SFO, I think um, a couple of things to bear in mind. Um one is this, that I think there are clearly, and I, I'd say this in my own experience, very committed, exceptionally committed um, members of staff that work there. And they're doing a difficult job and deserve some degree of, of respect. And I think in terms of engagement, it, it's important to decide how are you going to engage with the SFO? Are you going to be aggressive in your stance or are you going to try to be more collaborative in your um approach because I think it's really unhelpful to get to a stage where we've all heard of these stories where we have case controllers who no longer pick up the phone to defence solicitors write everything down in an email because there's that sort of real breakdown of trust so I think that's not not, not helpful um, for anyone. Yeah I mean can I, just on while we're on the subject of people um, I think one of the things that's interesting I was going back to your earlier point Camilla about evolution um, is that, that to my mind, yes, there's been evolution, but also a sort of a couple of revolutions along the way that, um, that you've had over the course of the last 10 years, you've had three directors, um, each of who has had a very, very different style and approach. So under, I guess, under Richard Alderman at the beginning of that period, you had someone who was, you know, very happy to engage with Defence Council, very happy to engage with companies, in many cases directly, um, or to work with companies on giving SFO views on corporate systems and controls. Um, and, you know, to my mind, there was nothing improper about any of that, but there were obviously suggestions that the SFO's decision making was being skewed by, by private interest. And you then, uh, David Green taking over as someone who I mean, really, it was almost as though the SFO was defined during that era on the basis of 
at the approach that um, you know, but, but by contrast to the approach that had been adopted by by Richard Alderman. So, you know, David Green much more formalistic, much the, the message very much being the SFO is a prosecutor and not an advisor, and very rigorous, um, pretty aggressive guidance around DPAs and self-reporting. Um, and now, now under Delisa Rosowski, we've got a much more was a nuanced approach. Um, so yes, it seems to me there has been evolution, but but also some really sort of big shifts. And I think one of the things that's interesting to my mind is is whether that's um, you know how appropriate that is as in a public body to have such fundamental shifts in approach. I think though, I mean one one of the, one of the points there is if you're looking for. Um, uh, you were asking Helen about drivers and what individuals and companies ought to know about. The one thing that's a constant throughout all the directors is um, the scrutiny of the courts, ultimately. Um, and and it, it, it seems to me that, that when approaching or negotiating with um, the SFO, whether you're an individual, in fact, or a corporate, one of the key things to understand, and it builds on Miller's point around, you know, these are committed people. One of the key points to understand, it seems to me, is that the SFO, HMRC, NCA, CPS, all of them, um, the, the, the case that ultimately goes to a court has to have evidential and um, legal integrity. So, you know, if you are going to have your investigator or with your prosecutor you've got to you've got to and it's frankly it's, it's straightforward negotiation isn't it? it's actually put yourself in their shoe yeah what what if i am this organization also important it's an organization it's a hierarchy where decisions have to be tested at different levels in the organization what is going to be acceptable to them as an organization bearing in mind the the, the code the code for crown prosecutors and the way that they have to operate but with the, the, if you like, the, the failsafe of a, of, a, of a court at the end of the day, testing that decision. All public authorities worry about criticism. They do not want to be criticised. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think that one great. of the interesting points though there is, I mean, going back to the point about differences driven by individuals, um, I think the other aspect of that that I think is, um, some would say concerning, one would just say a fact of life, but is the real differences between case controllers, for example, yeah. within the SFO. Yeah. That, um, you know, on one case, one could be dealing with one case controller and, um, you know, it'll be, um, you know, a very straightforward relationship. Um, in other cases, it may be a much more challenging relationship. And I think it's an interesting question, again, as to how appropriate that is. Um, given the seriousness of the issues that are involved. I mean, of course, people are people, and part of our job as, as Defence Council is to be able to react um, uh, to the approach of a particular case controller. But I think it's it, 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 there are, the differences are so stark that, um, uh, you know, it is quite a key issue in any case. Yeah, I think that's right, Nick. And I think some of that comes, some of that comes down to inexperience, not all of it, some of it's clearly personality, but some of it comes down to inexperience. And I think that's why you might get those occasions when you're expecting to have a dialogue with the SFO and a response from the other side. But actually, 
there's a request to take it away and they'll get back to you. And that that smacks of sort of a, a hesitancy because of a, an, an uncertainty uh, of position. And I think, as you say, Nick, clearly it's the it's the job of defence counsel to work through that. And I think what, one way of working through that is by finding the solution um, for the SFO. And although that might seem counterintuitive, uh, in fact, it does give a really good opening for a defence position to be able to to suggest an innovative idea or a way in which you can assist uh, the prosecution, uh, which of course is also assisting, no doubt, your your own perspective. So I think I think there are ways in which you can um, seek advantage from that as well as you know deal with the issue. And can I just then can I just ask then? We, this has all been extremely SFO specific. Um, what do you think, if anything, it just differentiates the SFO or, or the, the kind of points we've been talking about in terms of the dynamic between the SFO and other, other organisations? I mean, Stephen, you've done a lot of work, you know, you and I have worked together on a lot of cases with the FRC and the NCA and the SCA. Do you think there are any differences in, in tone or approach or dynamic for these other agencies? I think there's there's two points, two quick points I can make there. Um, I think first, the SFO, because of the Roskill model, the SFO both investigates and prosecutes. And so you so there is a um, uh, if you like, uh, and I know not everyone would agree with this, but there is a more um, joined up approach from that prosecutor. I think if you're dealing with um, HMRC, for example, HMRC, you'll be dealing with uh, the criminal investigation team or teams at um, HMRC, but the CPS is likely prosecuting it. So there is going to be a disconnect sometimes there, similarly with the police and with the NCA. So you won't necessarily be, you know, dealing with the same team. So I think that's one um, uh, potential problem, if you like, when you're discussing um, a, a, an agreed approach or an agreed outcome. Um, Equally, even if you're not trying to reach an agreement, if you're simply trying to put your client's position, you know, if you're just trying to um, you know, articulate a defence, who are you speaking to? Are you speaking to the prosecutor? Are you speaking to the, the investigator? So that there is some uh, some disconnect. Um, the other the other point I'd make is, of course, if you're dealing with regulators, there is a well-worn path really there. You tend to have a you know a scheme, if you like, whether it's FCA or FRC or or any other um, a regulator, there tends to be a sort of a well-worn path for, certainly for settlement, um, if not for, for discussion. And I think in the criminal context, of course, that's that's not necessarily um, the case. I mean, we all remember, you know, and Camilla would have done a lot of this sitting there, you know, a magistrate's court somewhere and saying, well, will you will you drop the ABH as long as we plead to a, to a common assault or something like that, you know? So with the police and the CPS, you you might be in that territory. On on, on the, whereas with the SFO, you're in a much more, um, you know, the parameters are broader to some extent. I think that's right, and I think uh, one of the issues that that sort of throws up is, you know, to what extent those agencies are interested in the, the drivers for the clients, so commercial, or strategic, or financial implications. And I think the bottom line is they're not they're not interested at all for the reasons that Stephen's given that that's not. You know the 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 remit of the SFO. Uh, the the SFO looks at the evidential basis for any decision making and and to ensure that it is principled for all the reasons that that Stephen's given us. But I think that's where it is helpful to have if this is your strategy, 
and I think it's really important uh, as the client to have your strategy before you ever engage in any fashion with enforcement, really to, to know what the purpose of your conversation is. But if your strategy is, say, ultimately to reach a, a form of resolution, uh, then it is important to have built that relationship so that you can ex- at least explain the position that you're coming from, even if it's not the basis upon which the SFO will make a decision in your favour. Um, but if you can at least explain where you're coming from, basic rules of negotiation mean that hopefully both sides will understand each other uh, a, a bit better. Thank yeah, you, Kona. It defies. Sorry, Steve. I was just going to say is that we're we're sort of winding up shortly. Camilla's very helpful sort of takeaway is just she's just pushed it is around the the need to build those relationships with the with the people you're going to be sitting in a room with. Um, do you, Stephen and Nick, have any particular takeaways for what this means for clients who may not be necessarily very familiar with negotiating with enforcement? Well, I think I think I would just I would just really wholeheartedly agree with the point that um, you know we're we're talking about engaging with the SFO or or, or a regulatory entity, um, and uh, there is to pick up Stephen's point, there is a framework there, but nevertheless. One is ultimately engaging with individuals, and therefore, the building of relationships with those individuals is is a really important part of the process. Yeah, and I, I think the only thing I, I I think is absolutely critical is is to understand that ultimately, if it's a plea, if it's a fight, uh, if it's a tribunal um, hearing, uh, ultimately. A third party, a court, is going to look at whatever um, either the product, so to speak, of these discussions and will scrutinise it. And I think on that basis, um, you have to each side has to be um, willing to ensure that whatever their position is, it's a principled one based on um, evidence and based on a um, a, a correct or at least um, arguably correct interpretation of the, the legal framework. I agree with all of those points. I guess um, that definitely equates to just constantly being mindful, not just of your audience in the room at the time, but the further internal audience that enforcement might have on their side when decisions need to be agreed internally or at a more senior level. And as we've all said before, the um, the ultimate audience being being the court uh, in due course, if that's the kind of process that you're engaged in. So that's all really helpful. Thank you. Uh, three. Um, I don't think we've got time for anything else, but I know we could go on for a lot longer and maybe we'll come back to this topic in due course for another podcast. But thanks very much for giving giving us your time and speak to you again soon. Okay. Thanks very much. Bye. 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 Bye.